welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sound of the Green and Red podcast. I am Scott Parkin, your co-host coming from smoky, very smoky, red AQI, uh, Berkeley, California. And uh, we have an exciting show for you all today. And as always, I'm joined by Bob Bazenko uh, from Ohio, which surprisingly has better weather than you today. It's very nice out. And uh, as always, we want to start the show by thanking our listeners and viewers. Uh, we appreciate your support and uh, please share these and, you know, like them and comment on them and rate them and all that kind of stuff because, um, you know, we, we really enjoy doing this and bringing a, a lot of really cool people, including our guests today, to you, people who you might not hear otherwise. So appreciate your support. Yeah, and we're excited today to be talking to Paul Street. Uh, welcome, Paul. Thank you. Yep. Paul is an independent progressive policy researcher, award-winning journalist, historian, author, and speaker based in Iowa City, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. He is the author of seven books to date that include They Rule 1% Versus Democracy, Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, and his most recent book, which we're actually going to talk about a bit today, Hollow Resistance, Obama, Trump, and the Politics of Appeasement, which is coming out from Counterpunch Books. We actually had Joshua Frank on the other week, who's a co-editor at Counterpunch. Uh, Paul publishes regularly in Counterpunch and Truth Dig. Welcome to Green and Red, Paul. Before we get into the book, this is, you know, this is Friday morning, October 2nd, uh, at least for me here on the West Coast. And, you know, it's been a big news day. It's actually been a big news week. We've had Trump's tax returns put out in the New York Times on Sunday. And there was the debate. Uh, Trump made comments that were, you know, a little bit louder than a dog whistle to the white nationalists and the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. And then, you know, last night it was revealed, I believe actually by Trump's own hand or by his Twitter account that President Trump and uh, Melania, the first lady, have both tested positive for COVID-19. And so maybe we could just get into this a little bit. Do you want to share any like just immediate reaction or thoughts that you've had? Well, you know, I was um, I was already in shock, news cycle shock from the uh, tax return story. And then, I, of course, I watched the debate, which was, of course, disgusting and Everybody I know left online was talking about how revolting and pathetic and idiotic it was. But it was it was more than that. It was something deeper than that. There was a call out to the Proud Boys, who are a neo-fascist group, you know, stand back and what was it? Stand back and stand ready or whatever, you know, stand yeah. on, on guard. Stand by, stand by. Right. You know, this at the same time that it's clear the Trump administration is making a sympathy campaign for Kyle Rittenhouse, the team sure. that gunned down to uh, anti-racist in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But I, I thought even beyond the specifics of that, the whole demeanor, the whole approach that Trump took in that debate was a clear statement that he's not attempting to win the election in a normal kind of way at all. There's just no effort at all to reach out to independents or moderates or, or to women voters, right? None of that kind of stuff you would expect if in fact Trump was normally engaged in an election. And so I found it all very consistent with the notion that there's a kind of rolling coup underway that's about delegitimizing the election and, uh, you know, the continuation of this line that the only way I can lose is if, if it's rigged, which, if you ask me, is pretty much a call to civil war on behalf of his armed, on behalf of his armed backers after he uh, potentially loses the Electoral College count. So I thought, I thought it was even worse than, um, than some of what I've been hearing about it, there was just this relentless attempt to assault Biden as weak and as weak on the quote unquote radical left. My God, I'm part of the radical left. I wish the radical left was anywhere near as powerful. We've all been saying that. Donald yeah. Trump seems to act like it is. But, you know, this is a core fascistic theme that you have these elitist <clears throat> liberals in power who aren't equipped to crack down properly on the supposed anti-capitalist Marxists and radicals, you know, and I think he said radical left. I lost count. He used the phrase radical left at least 10 times that night. So that was terrible. Now there's the COVID 
revelation. And I noticed online uh, a lot of lefties were immediately sort of going into celebration mode and karma mode and all of that. And, you know, this is what he gets. And God knows there's the, 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 there's a there's an ocean's worth of, of karma potentially falling on the first uh, family, on, on the president, given all that. I mean, he denied the whole thing. He, we, we know from the Bob Woodward interviews that he knew how lethal it was, even while he was telling people it was a hoax and that it's just going to go away and promoting fake solutions and on and on and on. But then as people are thinking about it more, I notice it's, it's kind of like, wait a minute, does he really... Are we sure that he actually has COVID-19 or, you know, what are the chances it's really going to take him out? Is it all going to become part of a narrative? He was attacked by the China virus and then he he, he heroically overcame it. And, you know, with some sort of miracle cure, maybe it'll be hydroxychloroquine or, or something else, a plate of the religious base. Maybe this is part of a Superman narrative. He gets to not go have any debates <laughs> anymore. You know, he doesn't have to screw up with, with the horrible debates and he gets to, you know, get sympathy points and, uh, and then have a miraculous recovery and then just come out and have a V-shaped ass-kicking of the uh, Chinese communist-backed uh, Black Lives Matter Antifa Biden movement and put on a Superman case. So, you know, uh, the, the, the coup continues, you know. The, yeah, I, I got to admit, I, I don't I don't see the conspiracy part of it. I think it's Occam's razor. The guy's yeah. ignored the virus. He's exposed yeah. himself. He doesn't wear a mask. And I mean, I've that's, you know, that's the best think, case scenario. Yes, I, I think lefties sometimes get really kind of entwined in these conspiracies. And I don't see how this could help him. I mean, he's ignored it. He's dismissed it. And now COVID is a national story, you know, and I think his right. goal was to like make it not a story, to pretend it's not there anymore. Oh, and, and we have evidence that, that he, he he exposed people in, in Bedminster after he did. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, they're in panic. The, and I mean, this is, rich this is, donors. This, yeah. is, this is the whole team. We have pictures yeah. of Hope Hicks breathing all over yeah. uh, the despicable sociopath, Jared yeah. Kushner, who we know from Vanity Fair, killed a viable testing program yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, last spring because yeah, they determined that blue state. Yeah. <laughs> because they determined that it would, it would hit the blue states. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and I, I don't put Trump, um, I, I don't put it past him that when it came out that this was disproportionately hurting people of color, that he didn't like that. I, I mean, oh, I, think, I, don't, yeah, I think he's a genocidal doubt. racist, you know. Oh, he is, he is. He's a social Darwinist. And so old people yeah. and infirm people, yeah. people with comorbidities yeah. getting wiped out. In Donald Trump's worldview, uh, that's just okay. That's okay by him. So, you know, um, you're right. He's probably got it. It's 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 probably the real thing. But they're going to try and shape it too. Yeah, I just at this point, you know, what's striking is that there are 40 percent of Americans who who are going to be with him. You know, if he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue. But I watched about the last 15 minutes of the debate, and the part that stuck out to me, and I'm not trying to give any praise at all to Joe Biden. I've been aware of his career forever, and oh yeah, I spent about a decade referring to him as the unctuous Joe Biden. So, but uh, I was shocked because at one point when they were talking about Antifa and, and Trump was trying to bait him, uh, Biden said Antifa is an idea, not an organization, which really right. kind of struck me that that's part of the narrative now, which is actually pretty good. You know, it's, it's a good yeah, thing. Good yeah, I was and shocked. Then, and and then use Christopher Ray, the FBI director, as yeah. the reference. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah, I, like both, yeah, both those both. Things. I liked most of those. And I also liked yeah. uh, when he did keep yapping. I thought that yeah. Well, and at the end, I think he took a good approach, too, because everybody right now is, is hysterical about Trump leaving and Trump conceding and all this kind of stuff. And Biden said he's going to lose and he's going to leave. And I think that's the kind of a good way to go, to be very direct and defiant about it. Like, you're gone. You know, nobody wants you. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm a little more hopeful than you. Not not a lot, but I think I'm more hopeful than you that he's actually going to be gone on January 20th. You know, now his people, his crazies out there, you know, the Proud Boys and stuff. Yeah, I think they can wreck havoc, but I don't think he'll be president. I think it's after, locked you know. in that it's going to be a mess. I, I think that's fair. Yeah. Of all the, the people that the experts so-called, the, the yeah. Transition Integrity Project that have run all these scenarios, yeah. the only one that doesn't doesn't lead to a kind of constitutional crisis, potentially with bloodshed, is a sweeping Biden victory in the Electoral College and the popular yeah. vote. And that strikes me as very difficult to attain for a number of reasons. So I think it's going to be messy. Um, but I, I, I think there's going to have to be some action in the streets beyond voting. There's going to oh, have there's to be no doubt. There's no real doubt. protest to send a message to yeah. those parts of the power elite. And they do exist. And I think they even exist within the military command that they do want him out, that, 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 that do yeah. loathe him, that will send the message 
uh, listen, you son of a bitch, you got to go. This is yeah. not. I mean, Actually, the, the military. Yeah. Their own reasons to hate Trump, which aren't yeah. our reasons. You know, yeah. He discredits the American empire. Yeah. Now, the military elites, actually, I study them. So we, we talk about that oh, some other time them. because I could go on for hours about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah they I, hate no. Trump. They, hate they, they don't like him. He talks tough. He talks military yeah. and he did bone spurs and he puts yeah. tangerine on his face. And, you know, a lot of the guys, the commanders, people come out of West Point. They'll they'll completely bomb the shit out of him and screw up another country. But when it comes to the homeland, they, a lot of them actually sort of are constitution. No, I mean, clearly this is something unlike anything we've ever seen before. You mentioned going out into the streets and that actually brings up something else, which is we were talking before we went on about kind of certain segments of the left, like certain publications out of Brooklyn and Bernie Sanders and others. And there seems to be like either a, a hesitation or a reluctance to, to start planning for street actions. And yeah. I mean, they may occur like organically, like they did in late May after George Floyd. But right. I mean, why is it that we don't see like unions and groups of them? I mean, they should be planning on this. I mean, there are some people who are, I know, working on like kind of protesting if Trump tries to, to mess this up, but it doesn't seem like it's wide scale, is it? No, no, it isn't. Now, we had a little bit of Indian summer here in Chicago and elsewhere of that George Floyd stuff after the uh, Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. after the uh, after the ridiculous uh, grand jury decision there. And it was, it was interesting to be on the offensive again. I got out in yeah. the middle of that and it felt a little bit like um, I'm kind of um, amazed at in Chicago. And I hear this from other cities at the vacuum. Of left of left forces. We do have a yeah. DSA chapter here in Chicago. I think a lot of the people who used to be in ISO went into it, and it's just practically invisible. It's very hooked into. Um, they've got some aldermen. You know, they've got four or five aldermen. Yeah. And, you know, I want I want progressives making zoning decisions, and you know, sewer socialism. You know, with yeah. Victor, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's okay. But you know, you we get a Trump second term. Uh, and there ain't going to be much uh, in the way of a Black Lives Matter movement. There's not going to be much of an immigrant rights movement. There's not going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be a disaster. And I'm concerned about this attitude of waiting until, you know, if he steals it. When I am seeing him telegraphing, yeah. a, and, and this was, I, I thought, in the debate, he says it's not going to end well. You know, the quote-unquote debate, he made it clear that uh, he's counting on the 6-3 green court that we're looking forward to. I mean, I hear these Democrats who don't do that. Please don't do that. It's like, what, what have you been paying attention to these people? Of course, they're going to put this handmaid's tale, Amy Coney Barrett lady in there for a number of reasons. But one of them that makes it so urgent that she can get firmed quickly is, is hoping it's a trump card if this thing sure. works its way with the William Barr legal challenges that can be expected after the discrediting of the mail-in ballots. And Maybe working, maybe maybe competing slates of electors. There, there's really evil things afoot that the Republicans are talking about with um, preempting the popular vote of, of, yeah. of all college slates in six different battleground states. So we have a big court contest, and you know, if no one can get a, a get to 270 votes because of completing slates, and it goes to the House, and people think that means the Democrats win, and actually it doesn't. If people have to look up the Twelfth Amendment, then they'll see why it doesn't. So then it ends up potentially in the Supreme Court and he's banking on that. So I really think street action and getting getting good at it and getting, you know, and, and getting past this dichotomy. This whole Barack Obama, the best way to protest is to vote. No, Barack, the best way to protest is to protest. And in this particular election cycle, you might actually have to protest in order to guarantee any kind of decent, normal, bourgeois, constitutional yeah. vote this yeah. time. I would say not. I wouldn't say don't wait until November 3rd and the day after. It'd be, it'd be better to get moving now and get good at it because yeah. they're telegraphing it. You know, I suspect you're right that in, in, at the end of the day, that people in the streets plus the plus the sentiments of a lot of people in the power in the wealth and the power elite uh, will swing the day. But uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to like, you know, call the game before we actually get in the field and play it. Yeah. The, the other kind of thing I find I find interesting is like Trump is, you know, he is messaging his base, which gets into the street, which is, you know, not nearly as, in my opinion, not as large as like what we've seen this summer from the left. But like the Democrats are actually also like we're going to go after Antifa, too. Like Antifa in some ways has become a sort of like code word for people in the streets, whether it's like a, a peaceful march or whether it's, you know, people confronting fascists or coming, confronting the police. But like where Trump is like encouraging a base 
uh, foot soldiers for himself is like the Democrats are doing the opposite of that. And it's right. just, I actually feel like that talks a lot about the bankruptcy, not so much of the left, but of that sort of these liberal institutions and this liberal, neoliberal sort of like ideology that we've been combating for decades. Well, we've lost something that used to exist in American history, which is some synergy between the left and liberals. There used to be a kind of an understanding that some of the liberal elites had that they could use some thunder on the left. FDR could use some thunder on the left. LBJ could use some thunder on the left in order to go back into the political system in Washington and win some reforms. And the left could also understand that by winning certain things like the Wagner Act or the Social Security Act and the legalization of the CIO and the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, they go back to their membership, their rank and file people and say, hey, we got something for you. You know, we, we, there's something practical and you can you know, go back and organize on the basis of that. And I just don't see um, any willingness to defend the leftists anymore in, in the liberal community. It's certainly my experience in academic departments and unions and nonprofits were just invisible and, um, you know, persona non grata. And it's really depressing, you know, and I just, I, I haven't heard, has anyone in the mainstream political culture had one decent word to say in defense of actual radical leftists? I mean, we exist, we're out here. There's a bunch of us, we do things, you know, we organize unions, we, uh, we organize marches, we put our bodies on the line, you know, yeah. and they can't say a thing, you know. Um, no, I, I agree. I think one thing that I have noticed though is <clears throat> the, the ruling class really does despise Trump. I don't believe in deep state and all that stuff, but they're clearly, they don't like him. Well, most of it, their parts. Yeah, they don't, but, yeah, yeah, but. Yeah. But what's has shocked me in the last few months is seeing these like establishment uh, columnists for like the, the New York Times or the Washington Post write, you know, I wouldn't say favorably about Antifa, but like in a not in a less critical way because they hate Trump. So I think Trump in some ways has kind of given openings to, to spaces to people on the left. This, these ruling class fishers, because you're right, they're not homogenous. Yeah, I see. I hear, you know, so I hear things from Chris Hayes and, and Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times, and you probably saw that column by Dana Milbank in the Washington Post, where he says the Reichstag is burning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Way. And uh, yeah. I think they're really horrified. Uh, you know, it's funny, you know, there is this kind of relative autonomy of the state to some degree. So you're right, most of the ruling class hates Trump. So I think they did end up having a kind of marriage of convenience with him for a while because of deregulation. Oh, yeah. And, and tax, tax cut. Tax cuts. But at the and... end of the day, this is not their idea of a viable American empire. Yeah. With a with a with just a, an open tangerine antichrist fascist <laughs> at the head, tangerine tinted fascist at the head of it. And um, waking up to the fact that they've got a problem here. And one of the problems they have is our constitutional order, which ridiculously over represents the most reactionary yeah. parts of the country. And they see the need to counter him. And um, I think they're they're pointing out that uh, this claim of left wing terrorism is. You know, they, they, Christopher Ray is right, and there's a research about this. The, the real, who are the real terrorists in this country? Ninety-five percent of the examples of violent political terrorism are from the white supremacists on the right. So it's good they're it's good they're saying that. Um, yeah, and, and I don't think I mean the official green and red position is very much uh, what you said. You know, like people should be in the streets like yesterday. Uh, oh, yeah. I know one thing Scott and I have talked about, about like, kids in cages. That should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, we've talked a lot about um, Georgia because uh, Stacey Kemp has gotten so much publicity and, you know, she's done great stuff in, in uh, you know, registering people to vote in Georgia. You know, they've done a great job in registering voters. But then, you know, the secretary of state or the board of elections just scraps them all. And then they go to right. court. And, you know, some. No, my point is, why? Why aren't they in the streets? Why aren't they blockading? The state house and the the registrar's office and Delta and Coke and you know places like that. What is this antipathy among establishment left, or, you know, liberals, whatever you want to call them, to actually do something rather? Well, than I just, think that you know, upsets their corporate sponsors, don't you think? I mean, I think one of the dirty little secrets of the Democratic Party establishment is that they would rather lose. Um, they would they would rather lose to the right wing party, even as that party crosses over into full on white nationalism. Uh, then lose to the moderately progressive left of their own. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, like Sanders was there. They, they've already succeeded. They got rid of Sanders. Yeah. You know, so. but, but even but corporate sponsors aren't excited about people in the streets either, because that all bleeds no. into everything. Then then before you know it, we want 30 bucks an hour and, you know, and socialism and workers control and, and all of that. And um, so there, I, it, 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 it is just astonishing the reluctance to do that. Now, there is this wake-up call. You do have this coalition, I forget its name, of all these organizations, you know, these move-on-y types of groups uh, who are talking about the need to be in the streets, but only after, you know. Only fight back. After. Fight, they're they're like, calling it the fight back. Yeah. If, if, yeah. Is that what it's called? 
Yeah. If he steals it. I mean, and he's telegraphing that he's, he's yeah. going to no, no, it should, it Florida. Should. They, they, there was a recent federal court decision that said that 750,000 felons actually can't vote. That's really what it comes down to because, yeah, uh, yeah they fought to get them the right to vote, but they can't vote unless they pay all their court fees. Right. Well, in Texas yesterday, the, the governor of Texas yesterday closed all of the uh, drop boxes for balloting, one per county. Now, Harris County, where I lived half the year, is uh, 1,750 square miles and has like 6 million people. Right. There's one voting box for the entire county now. And the rural counties of, of, are like where you're from, Scott. You know, these are like heavily Republican counties with right. they're pretty small. So it's easy to get the one box. But in Harris County, forget it. Yeah, and then there's the, the, the bizarre voter ID laws that are meant yeah. to disenfranchise the students at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and the uh, mm-hmm. University of Iowa in Iowa City. And, you know, this is this is the stuff that Greg Palast has made a sort of semi-career out of talking about the last few years, right? I think, I think he's probably already out with an article called The Theft of the, uh, the Theft of the 2020. Yeah. yeah. But I, I've never heard what's, what's new to me is this notion of armed poll watchers and recruiting people to... Uh, to, to go intimidate people, uh, I, I would assume, in minority voting districts in battleground states. I mean, yeah. do, we, do we have to send out armed and trained uh, members of the Deacons of Defense and the Redneck Revolt and the, Black, the Neo-Black Panther Party to, yeah. uh, to take these, uh, these uh, uh, Trump and Volk Americana fascists on on voting day? It's, it's just wild. Well, the, the new group in, in Georgia, is the, it's, a, it's like a black militia called the Not Fucking Around Coalition. Is that right? Yeah, they were in Louisville. They actually had a standoff with the uh, Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer or something like that. So. Oh, is that right? Well, you know, yeah. listen, I mean, uh, Cornel West said that in Charlottesville, if Redneck or Bolt yeah. hadn't, hadn't been there, that uh, they would have been wiped out. Yeah. Uh, not just the woman who was run over by a car, but, but yeah. Cornell, Brother West and all of that. I, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I don't think Cornell West is, uh, he's not, certainly not predisposed towards violence. And so I yeah. suspect that that's like an honest statement that, yeah. And, and he actually was there with a group of clergy as well that were being like set upon by by the white nationalists and the by lunatics who are walking around saying blood and soil Jews will never yeah. us yeah. and have AR-15s and stuff like that. This is real stuff. Yep. Um, okay. Oh, I mean, you're right. It's not as big as what as the as the progressive turnout for George Floyd. The problem is, uh, I don't know, AR-15s and everything sort of changed things. And, I notice people are afraid to go out in the streets right now and, and, and fear of violence is. Oh, I know people who are afraid to put a Biden sign in their yard. So, <laughs> oh, if you get in uh, some yeah. of the rural, yeah, rural yeah. Iowa. I, I've just heard yeah. from a guy in Wisconsin who, who's a, yeah. he's an organic farmer and he's got guys in pickup trucks uh, swinging yeah. by his, uh, his place uh, every other day, honking their horn and cussing them out and stuff. Yeah. Like a lot of my big city friends in New York and Chicago, they, they don't, I've lived in Iowa city for years. They don't understand in much of America, these guys are, they're, they're just two miles outside of town. If, if, if that yeah, I'm in Ohio right now, northeastern Ohio. You see them all the time. So, you know, yeah, I mean, this used to be like solid. It's solid blues. You could get union, you know, steel mills and all that. And now Trumbull County, I think, voted for Trump. And yeah, I'm seeing the pickups and the big flying banners and, you know, vote for Trump, make the liberals cry, that kind of shit. So the all right flags. And yeah. yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Don't tread on me. And, yeah, you know, in August, we actually, which was like one of the been a couple of peak moments, but it was a peak moment in what was going on in Portland. We actually talked to a couple of street organizers yeah. from Portland who were actually emphasizing about how people there, the people on the left, not necessarily Antifa, but anyone who goes to protest were buying military-grade helmets, they're buying, they're buying flak jackets, and then they're also buying military-grade gas masks because of the conflict. Well, this, this goes way back in the Northwest. The Northwest is that, that's, that's a whole other thing. It's, you know, punk culture and animal rights and serious uh, deep green eco rebels and, and so forth. And, and, and at the same time, a neo-fascist skinhead, right? And yeah. we, don't, we don't have that in Chicago. But our main thing we deal in Chicago is actually the white cops. I engage the white cops at the Black Lives Matter rallies and just sort of uh, kind of sound them out a little bit. All their talking points are right out of right wing media. They, they watch Fox News. Yeah. They're, they're, that's yeah. who the big city rednecks are. It's the white police. And they will uh, they will crush protests with great glee. Now the black oh, yeah. Latino cops might be a little different. That mm. might be interesting to see. There's a bunch of them too. So um, just to kind of shift shift topic a little bit to your book to Hollow Resistance. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll talk about we'll hit on that for a minute, <laughs> uh, or maybe many minutes. Uh, so in in the book, we've both uh, Bob and I have both read through it this week. You know, you talk about the failings of the Obama Democrats in the age of Trump. 
that you call the hollow resistance. Could you actually, why don't you talk a little bit and describe the failure of the hollow? Talk, tell us what you mean by well, that. You know, I, I took a phrase that's not original. I took it from Sheldon Wolin in his remarkable book, Democracy Incorporated, which came out at the same time my Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics came out. So in March of 2008. And what both he and I are doing, and he did with more sort of academic gravita um, than I did, is talking about the pretend progressivism, what he calls the inauthentic opposition of the Democrats. He had this great line in that book. He said, if the Democrats ever actually get in there, they will show that there really is, if they, if they manage to slip in, that there is no real opposition to the corporate order. There is no real anti-imperialism. There is no real environmental party in this country. And, and the rightward drift of society, Roland said, will continue on unabated. And at some point that Democrat will, will by virtue of demobilizing the majority progressive base of the country, which won't see any reason in, in to continue supporting this, this administration, will we'll, we'll give rise to, I'm, I'm going further than what Mullen actually said. This is my analysis. This was always one of my concerns about Obama, that he would just open the door for uh, a right-wing return that would be worse than ever because it would have a big overlay of, of white nationalist racism triggered simply by the fact of, that Obama was African-American. And this would be very ironic because he will have done nothing during his presidency to actually defend Black Americans in any particular kind of way or to advance the cause of justice in any particular way, in part because he calculates that white America is already so triggered by the fact that he's black that he better not say anything more against uh, against racial injustice, and in part by the fact that he's a neoliberal who really doesn't give, never really gave all that much of a damn. I know Obama from Chicago from before, from late 1990s and early 21st century. He really was never really was much of a civil rights advocate at all. He's always had a very standoffish relationship to the poor population in Chicago in the black population. So um, this is the Obama as ex-president that was the Obama as pre-president and Obama's president. It's the same old vacuous to uh, repressive neoliberal centrist corporatist. Uh, I don't know why anyone really would have expected all that much from Obama as an ex-president, but he's been incredibly silent. It's been the silence of the uh, Weimar lamb, really, okay. as this neo-fascist president he has marched on. He's, he, 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 He's not called, he's almost never called out Trump by name. Uh, uh, um, he usually doesn't say anything at all. When he does say something, it, it has, during the Trump presidency, it has been when his signature programs are explicitly attacked, like the Iran nuclear deal. And when Trump's gone in court after the Affordable Care Act or the Paris Climate Accord, and then he just releases these kind of very official sounding, as if he was still president, you know, a couple paragraph statements, you know, giving these very kind of standard conservative defenses of his, his prior program. Uh, he'll never say, he'll never describe Trump the way we've been referring to him as a neo-fascist or even as a white nationalist. Uh, and and it, that's really kind of disgusting. And it's typical of Obama. It's the Obama I remember from Chicago. There's this big disconnect between private Obama, what he knows is really going on, and public Obama and what he'll ever say. And early on in the first chapter of this book, Hollow Resistance, I find I use this remarkable quote that we have from this film documentary that came out this year on Hillary, which he, he's talking to Tim Kaine of October of 2016. He's saying, Tim, watch out. You better really you better have your shit together. You really ought to do this, you know, do this campaign right, because we've got to keep a fascist. This is Obama's own language. And Obama's not stupid, because we got to keep a fascist out of the White House. He actually said that. That's in October. The next month, the day after Trump, who he privately understands accurately as a fascist, is going out in the Rose Garden and telling everybody, you know, I've talked to Trump and it's great. We're, we're all Americans first. And this is just an intramural battle. And American yeah. politics is just a conflict within the 40 lines. And I'm handing off the baton of democracy to this guy. It's just so damn despicable because he, yeah. I, I know Obama from Chicago. I know that privately he knows better. Okay. He's a smart guy. Obama even well, has this kind of, yeah, he had exposure to Marxist political scientists and history at Occidental College in Columbia. Yeah. 
And when I worked at the Urban League for many years, a, a, a good close friend of his used to talk about his dialogue ongoing with then state Senator Obama. And he had, it, he had this kind of inverted Marxian understanding of his own role in society. Nobody knows this about Obama, but they used to joke around about, you know, I've got to shake down more money from the metropolitan area bourgeoisie. They were joking around, you know, but, but, but it, it, it showed some understanding. So Trump, Trump, I think Obama, Obama knew what Trump was all, right? And, and he yeah. just calm everybody. And this has been the theme of his whole ex-presidency. And I, I just want to say one thing further, which is one thing that intrigued me and hooked me into actually doing this study, which I wasn't sure I wanted to do at first, is it really is an interesting, I'm a historian, there's an interesting question of how ex-presidents are supposed to behave. And the norm is always, you know, do some fundraisers and, 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 you know, and have a few appearances and be very polite to your successor. But what the hell is the norm when the president that you've ushered in and handed off the baton to is a whacked out, maniacal, apocalyptic, tangerine-tinted, white nationalist neo-fascist <laughs> who trashes you, who, who knows no yeah. norms at all, yeah. and who spends his whole presidency trashing the hell out of you. So, yeah. you know, what are the rules here? And Obama's con- continued yeah. to be. I'm going to take well, Yeah, so anyway. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you to follow up a little more on that. I mean, it shows the vacuity of American politics because he's done the same thing to like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, like viciously insulted them. And now they've got their, they don't take their lips off his ass. So, right. Um, yeah, they can't they ingest know, enough demon semen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if you look at polls, Obama and his wife are the two most popular, influential, yes. respected people, right? So the guy does have some juice. And I know a lot of liberals say, well, it's because of racism that he ha- he couldn't do the things he wanted. And I always point out, well, no, that's also who he is. And, you know, remember, like, right after he was inaugurated, he went to Wall Street and said, there are people out there with pitchforks, and I'm the only thing that's standing in between them. And there's a really good book by uh, right. Reed Hunt, right. who was active in the transition, who talked about, you know, how Obama embraced, like, Larry Summers and, you know, all these crazy people like that. So if you want to talk a little bit more about, like, the fact that he's actually, like, this corporatist neoliberal, he... He, you know, I think there's this stirring symbolic, you know, symbolic importance to him being elected. But beyond that, he's he's like Dick Gephardt or, you know, one of those guys. He's not yeah. really, you know, I've you got a little about that. Because, I've got a couple anecdotes yeah. in the chapter that I call Barack von Obamdenberg. And, and <laughs> the analogy there is Paul von Obamdenberg, who was the Weimar predecessor to Hitler and the guy that pretty yeah. much the keys to Hitler. And uh there's these two episodes that I talk about in that chapter, one of which is about five months after Trump is inaugurated, Obama gets a Profiles in Courage Award at the John Fitzgerald Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston. And he gives a speech in which he says, you know, it doesn't take a lot of courage to serve just the propertied wealthy few and give them what they want. And I thought to myself the first time I heard this, what chutzpah has an exact description of his whole entire presidency, which was an exercise in rendering liberal progressive rhetoric, the the rhetoric that he was elected on, visibly inauthentic to the whole society, including a significant part of his base, including a significant number of black voters who looked back at this presidency, which was all about giving Citigroup and Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Trust, and the rest of corporate America, everything they wanted, and and thereupon opening the door for Trump uh, to win in 2016. And the, the other quote comes later in the year, 2017, and Obama's talking to the Chicago Economic Club, which is basically the Chicago metropolitan area bourgeoisie, financial and corporate elite, the people that he used to shake money down from to become an Illinois state senator and then to become a U.S. senator and in his in, in his election bit. And he gets up there and says, um, the woman from Ariel, the black bourgeois woman from Ariel Capital, the Chicago Economic Club, says, is our constitutional system in danger? It seems like it is. We've got a lunatic in there. She doesn't use that phrase. Who doesn't respect any, you know, usual liberal norm? And, and she says, what are we going to do? What should we do? What do you recommend? And of course, all he can say is some weak reference. Well, you got to vote. Stay informed. And <laughs> well, his whole audience, I guarantee you, was pretty informed about how they were about to get the biggest tax cut, you know, in the last two decades. And they were pretty informed about it. And they were all, 
and they were all for and he says well he says uh, uh, merit, uh he says you've got to tend to this garden of democracy he says <laughs> being <it's>, there <laughs> and he starts talking about vienna he said you could be in a in a in, a, in an orchestra hall or something, or a beer hall in Vienna in the 1920s. And he's, he's referencing Weimar yeah. Germany. And then he says, everything can collapse very quickly. And before you know it, 60 million people are dead. You know, and I read that, I heard that. And I said, really, is that what you did? You tended to the garden of democracy? You're, you're, no, he gave what William Greider famously said. He gave the nation a blunt lesson on who, on who has power and who doesn't. You know, full bailout. For, uh, for corporate and financial America and, and barely a life raft for working class America. And when people rose up in disgust with the Occupy movement in, in the late summer and early fall of 2011, local democratic um, administrations and cities across the country in alliance with Obama's Department of Homeland Security crushed it lately. They, they crushed the rebellion. So, you well, know, and then he blew up Libya and other stuff like that. <laughs> Not long after that, he was uh, after he left office. He was speaking in Houston at the at the Baker Institute at Rice, oh, yeah. and he said did the same thing. He's talking to like an oil crowd. He said, "Look at all the money I made you. You know, look at all the yeah. money I made you in the stock market. You look at all the money I made for oil." So, this is. This is a wicked racist country. I mean, that's that's not even debatable. But the fact is, that's not the only reason he failed, because, you know, he was who he was. I want to say something, to say something about that, too. This is an interesting kind of dilemma. I was always, um, you know, I, I was wrapped up in anti-racist public policy and, and scholarship for a long time. It was sort of my defining issue. And, you know, for me, seriously confronting the, the, the obstacles to, to black equality were not just about putting... A, a man or a woman with a black face in a high place. It's sure. about policy. Sure. And I was always actually very concerned about whether it actually was a good idea to have a black guy who's also a vacuous to repressive neoliberal go into the White House. Yeah. I mean, th th it's not racist to wonder if that's a good idea because he was guaranteed by virtue of his skin color to provoke a massive white nationalist reaction and he was also guaranteed by virtue of his neoliberal worldview to do absolutely nothing to defend the very people who are going to be victimized by that backlash that's been happening and he's been cashing in with a oh, 65 yeah. million dollar book contract and a multi-million Netflix deal contract. yeah oh yeah and and Michelle's vapid book got 20 million dollars <laughs> or something like that and they live on this gigantic piece of acreage yeah. on Martha's Vineyard and travel around the world. I saw his face in the digital crowd in the LA Lakers game the other night. He's just hamming it up. And, you know, he wants to be an NBA um, card owner. Yeah. All this yeah. money that he's making. And I wonder if that's related to him telling LeBron James to, uh, no, don't go on strike to protest. Uh, just vote. George Floyd and Jacob yeah. Floyd. You know? Interesting angle on that. We're going to do a quick break to do a station ID. Folks, you're listening to uh, Paul Street, author of Hollow Resistance and many other books, journalist, researcher, uh, educator on the Green and Red podcast. And you can find us on various social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, we're also on YouTube and this interview will be on YouTube. And then uh, we also always need a little help so we don't have to actually get corporate sponsors ourselves. Uh, and so, you know, become a patron of Green and Red Podcast at patreon.com, Green Red Podcast, backslash Green Red Podcast, or make a one-time donation at greenredpodcast.org. You know, talking about Obama, I'm going to just kind of go with the next question is, you know, I'm out of movements. I've done a lot of work in movements and, you know, anti-war movement, labor movement, environmental movement. And in 08, it always struck me as how the movement was like so just like captured by Obama. There was this like hope and change. He used a I lot of like, yes, we can, which was a takeoff of Cise Puede, which is the farm workers slogan. And yet as soon as he gets into office, they kind of built this momentum to get elected in 08 through Obama for America, which was this huge organizing body and movement and momentum. And then they completely demobilize it. They don't use it to actually kind of push for more progressive policy. Be now we know it's because he was this neoliberal. Well, 
I was warning people about that from oh, 2004 on. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to say that when you say now we know. Yeah. Yeah. Many, many people found out the hard way. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of great stories. I, I actually work at my day job is I work at an environmental nonprofit. And so there's a lot of great stories about how the environmental nonprofits actually thought, oh, Obama's in. Now we're going to get everything we want. And, you know, they really confused access with influence which I, I feel like is a kind of important thing in this, in, in, within the professional left or the institutional left is they often are confusing access to power to actually have, being able to influence it. And I'm just wondering uh, if you have any thoughts on that. Well, you know, everyone talks about Paris, right? And Trump ripped up the, the uh, Trump ripped up the Paris, pulled the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord, which by the way, wasn't a, a climate accord that's nowhere remotely close to the drastic carbon emission reduction. Uh, that we need, but people forget about Copenhagen. Obama destroyed Copenhagen. He went over there as a U.S. representative to uh, maniacally and brilliantly undo any very serious efforts that were underway at that time in, during his first term for binding global carbon uh, emissions. And, and, you know, and then went on and okayed fracking and, and, and expanded offshore oil drilling and just all kinds of um, stuff. So that was, you know, that, that was proven to be naive. Uh, um, um, the attack on single payer early in, in Obama's first year, led by his chief of staff and future Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who was about as vicious a neoliberal pit bull as has ever existed. And we had to deal with him as a mayor in Chicago. And by the way, he was forced out of here by action in the streets uh, in yes. the late of, of Laquan McDonald. That's why he didn't run for a third, third term. He knew he didn't have a chance. Uh, you know, um, he couldn't even invite his old personal physician and legendary Chicago single mayor activist, Dr. Quentin Young, couldn't even get an invite to the conferences that Obama held in 2009 for health care reform. Now, this was just a replay of the first year of the Bill Clinton administration in 93 uh, and and Obama and Emmanuel played the same exact role that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton played in marginalizing single-payer health insurance, which, by the way, right now is supported by seven in 10 Americans. I think it's gone up from like its usual. I, like a majority of Republicans as well. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's I think so. I, it's close, but I think it's over 50 percent or close to it. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I hear Bernie Sanders going on saying we're going to have to do these various things to save democracy. And I always worry about the throwing around of that phrase. What democracy? I mean, I, I think the constitutional republic, you know, sort of bourgeois constitutionalism may be at stake with Trump. But democracy went south a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, when you've got seven in 10 people support Medicare for all and it yeah. can't, you can't get a remote hearing in in the presidential election, um, you know, something's wrong. It's been wrong for a long time. There's a whole literature on this. You know, serious academics who seriously study this stuff, look at public opinion data and what people believe, and then cross that up with uh, uh, policy outcomes. Uh, uh, and they're not all Marxist or radical leftists. They're not part of uh, Donald Trump's radical left. There's very just <laughs> good, standard, you know, okay, safe, liberal Princeton, Northwestern, Harvard scholarship. Yeah about how we're not a democracy. Honest, honest people admit that. People, I know people in the business class who admit They know it very well. well I think they're more like, I think they're more likely to get it than the typical American is, you know. Sure, the yeah. People in the, you know, the ruling class, yeah. Also in the book, you have a, a piece about the, the black misleadership class, as you phrase it, we've used that term as well. Could you actually talk a little bit about that and what role they've played? In well, you know, resistance? Uh, you know, Biden had this ridiculous comment a, a while back about uh, the Latino community has internal divisions, but the black community doesn't. Well, that's from people who spent no real time in the black community. I worked for many years as the research director of the Chicago Urban League. And there's a bourgeoisie. There's a bourgeoisie in every community and there's one in sure. the black community. And a lot of uh, a black upper middle professional class and, 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 and uh, uh, elite Folks who came out of the 60s, like my CEO for many years at the Urban League, were thoroughly captured by, um, by the corporate class. And this mm -hmm. happened over, you know, uh, 30 years. And um, <laughs> Obama reinforced that. One of the ugly aspects of Obama being in the White House is the way he sort of helped move black public opinion further and further to the right. 
there was a guy named Michael Dawson, I'm forgetting the name of the book, a really good black sociologist, political scientist at the University of Chicago. And I remember he did a book in the 90s showing how political attitudes lined up by race and the most leftmost segment of America by far and away, in, including things that you would expect, like, uh, you know, uh, welfare state and social protections and all that, but also foreign policy. It was a black community. And the way Obama became an agent of moving some of that population over to the right to the point where you had the black vote playing a very decisive role in hand taking the nomination from a guy who was for shit that would really matter and help the black community like single-payer health insurance yeah. you know like big green jobs programs for the echo for the uh the environmental retrofitting of inner city structures and things like that bernie sanders right yeah and instead of through the mechanism of Obama behind the scenes and, and you know, the, the pivotal role of the South Carolina primary and James Clyburn. Uh, Clyburn. Clyburn and John Lewis both. You know. and, and unfortunately, yeah. John Lewis. It's John just Lewis tragic. Right? The role that yeah. the role that John Lewis ended yeah. up. It's really it's yeah. really sad. Here's a guy who walked onto the stage of history with heroic, courageous social movement activism and, and moved into the congressional black caucus and and um you know which is funded by telecommunications and high finance and all of that it's yeah. really one of the saddest stories i saw it in a very personal way during my years working at the chicago urban league i was a sort of de facto black political actor and uh, all these guys were very centrist maybe danny davis a little a little better bobby rush was horrible jesse jackson yeah. oh, stacy abrams takes bloomberg's money you know so yeah. right yeah, yeah. and Obama's part of that, and he and he reinforced it, and uh, really with really ugly outcomes. And now you've got a nominee who's got all this credibility because of association with the black president, who has just said and done horrible things on race. I mean, it's hard to even know to be where to begin with on Joe Biden and race. And incidentally, a big theme in my book is that we owe this cognitively challenged, insultingly right wing and somewhat doddering candidate. And don't get me wrong, I don't want Trump coming back. I, I may be forced to vote for this guy this time. Or in fact, I am gonna be forced to vote for him this time because of the awfulness of Trump. But my God, this is the best the Democratic Party could do to put up against a man that Noam Chomsky correctly describes as the most dangerous criminal in human history, Donald Trump. Uh, and we owe this guy, Biden, who has a big Wall, pro Wall Street record, who, who says shit like, uh, uh, oh, those Jim Crow you know, racial terrorist senators in the South weren't that bad because they never called me boy, you know, who says that uh, black kids could do as, what does he say, poor kids could do as well in school as white kids, you know, who tells a black talk show host, uh, you ain't really black if you're not ready to vote for him. You know, it's just, it's a string of, 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 of insulting comments. Why is this guy even still around? Why is he a player? Why is he on center stage of history right now, getting ready to possibly become by far in a way the oldest president who ever to start a term? It, it was Ronald Reagan before. He'll be 78 if he gets inaugurated on January 20th. And, and there really are issues with his with his the gray cells, if you ask me. I, I the, the decline over the last four years, if you look at tape, is is really evident. Um, and why is this guy up there? Well, Obama rescued him, a sure. terrible presidential candidate by making him a vice president. We, we owe Biden to Obama as much as we owed the brief Sarah Palin moment to, um, to John McCain. Um, and yet we need him to win, which is really sad. Yeah. Let me kind of, cause this is a, a big debate. It's been a big debate on the left and there's a larger debate about electoralism in the Sanders campaign. And we don't really have to go into the details of that. I think everybody knows how I feel about electoralism and, and even Bernie Sanders. But um, the attacks on Biden, which you just laid out, which are absolutely correct. And we've known that for like, like decades, hell, half a century, really. Yeah. But at the same time, like you pointed out, Trump is a different kind of cat. This is something we, you know. And so I, but I'm seeing a lot of leftists who say, vote for Howie Hawkins, don't vote. And there's, there's kind of it's funny because they were very upset about vote shaming, you know, like the, the way the Democrats vote shame Sanders people. You have to vote for us now. But they're kind of doing the same thing, like, how dare you vote for Joe Biden? And I just wondered, you know, what you thought about that. I personally, like I told you early on, for the first time since Jesse Jackson, I'm voting because Trump's got to go. He's got to be deposed. 
and and you then know, you move I've, on. I've, you know, I've, you know. I've voted. I think the first time I ever voted yeah. in my life was John uh, was uh, Barry Commoner, Citizens Party, nineteen. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I think I used to vote for. Um, I didn't want to be CP. I didn't want to vote for Gus Hall, so I remember voting for Trotskyists in the nineteen eighties. Oh. <laughs> it was some steel worker the SWP used to run named yeah. Dana, and I used to vote for him. I did the, the first time I ever voted in a contested state in my life was Iowa, 2004. And George Bush freaked me out so much with the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. I thought I would try it, you know, and I hated John Kerry. And then I voted green ever since then. So yeah. all but one election in my life, I've done the third party thing. This time, no, no. Yeah. This is a malignant tumor. Yeah. Donald Trump. This is, this is, this is, and you know, you'll get the lecture from the green, you'll get a couple lectures from the greens. Well, you just want to replace the disease or the tumor with the conditions that gave rise to it with the same old thing. Well, it is my analysis that Trump yeah. is an outcome of Obama and an outcome of neoliberalism to a very significant extent, but put yourself in the position of a surgeon. There's a malignant, this is not just any old malignant tumor. This is a malignant tumor that's got to go within the next two months or the patient dies. It is not an endorsement of cancer or an endorsement of the conditions that give rise to cancer to remove a malignant neo-fascist tumor, you know? And as for, you know, voting as a, as a statement of conscience, you know, you've got to vote your conscience. Conscience has nothing to do with the American major party binary electoral system. I look forward someday, I don't know, after the revolution or after a significant rebellion, so when we have a viable multi-party system in this country, that would involve proportional representation, that would involve full public financing, that would involve significant media breakup, and you know that would involve a transformation in our political culture or moving to a parliamentary system. I mean, my God, if a, if, if, if is a prime minister as awful as Trump had happened in any number of European countries, there there would have been snap there would have been a vote of no confidence oh yeah the yeah. snap election yeah. i mean we're locked into this quadrennial time staggered nightmare where supposedly citizens have input by making marks next to names uh, selected in advance for them by the ruling class for two minutes once every 1460 days okay. that's pathetic but you know what we're not going to have a constitutional revolution between now and november 3rd there is a, it is binary it's a it's a binary choice it yeah. sucks and it doesn't have anything to do with conscience. And, yeah. and the way the, our electoral college is set up and the way this major party system is set up, I'm sorry, doing what I've done all my life in the past, if I did that in Iowa this time, which is weird, this is, Iowa really is 50-50 this time. I, yeah. I have voted third party in Iowa, but only after looking at the Des Moines Register poll. And I saw Obama was running away with it in 08. I saw Obama was running away with it in 12. And I saw Trump was running away with it in 16. He ain't running away with Iowa this time. Yeah. Something shifted. I'm sorry. If I vote for Howie Hawkins in Iowa, I am kind of casting what? I, is it half a ballot or something like that for, uh, for Trump? And, and well, I think that the kind of left obsession. Yeah. Well, no. I like Howie, by the way. I love Howie Hawkins. Yeah, yeah. But the Green but Party, a, most of the Green Party is not like Howie, incidentally. Howie oh, Cobb. They, David Cobb? Yeah. <laughs> we don't get us started on him. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you see the uh, Green Party in Iowa, it's full of libertarians and yeah. lefties and 9-11 conspiracists and all kinds of coups. Well, I think the, the, the issue of electoralism is big, too, because we see this obsession with it. And right. to me, voting, I mean, I agree with yes. you. It's not this big, huge, right. you know, it's a tactic. You either vote or you don't vote. And it's like, I always joke, it's like, it's like sex or religion. It's what you make of it, you know? Right. Uh, and you don't, that's, you know, like you do it, and, you know, move on. That's another reason I can do this, that I can just, yeah. go, okay, this, and this guy got to vote for a month, because I'm like you. Voting is not a religion to me. It's no. not a statement of conscience. No. I, I don't. We're not, you and I are not ballot fetishists like no. a lot of people are. And I, I've been shocked by some of the left-wing people I know who I thought were better than that. And, yeah. and, like, yeah. and, they, and, and they get their undies all tied up in a bunch because I say, you know, actually, I see a reason to tactically vote right now. Yeah. What's, the, what's the freaking problem here? Right? Yeah. It's, it's also because they're making too much out of voting. And you can yeah. sheepdog people into electoralism with yeah. the Green Party. Yeah, or, oh, absolutely. Or the party of yeah. Socialism and Liberation or yeah. the Socialist yeah. Equality Party in California yeah. or whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, shit happens when people fill public squares and stop traffic and, and, and have general assemblies. And, you know, and, you know, it, God bless these Black Lives Matter activists out here. So, you know, when, when they fight back, when they when they strike, we fight back and we shut shit down. Well, that's right. 
you know, that's how the 60s happened. That's how the 30s happened. Without the sit-down strikes, you don't have a second New Deal. You know, we're in this moment where voting's important, but you well, know, now this is also you should also be out marching and protest is required for voting. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. and registering to vote and making sure people's ballots. But the dichotomy. That's that's. I've been I've been wondering about that. Can we can we break through this? Uh, you know this. You know Howard Zinn says you know it's not about who's sitting in the White House; it's sitting in the streets. Can we you know can we break through this dichotomy in this particular case? Even people who are into bourgeois electoralism, can you get it? That you now have a neo-fascist in here that's telegraphing that he's at least trying to collapse the normal bourgeois constitutional electoral process. And, and, you know, and there are hints that people get this, you know, I'm just, I'm just worried that, that they don't want to put anybody in the streets until it's too late. I I, I think we need to get good at it now. Uh, Paul, just on the book real quick, maybe how did you, how did you actually come to do the book? Oh, well, you know, this was actually brought up to me as it was almost like an assigned topic as a journalist. Sometimes I like to not have to think, you know, and, and have topics assigned for me. It's kind of fun. And Counterpunch books reach out to me mm-hmm. in connection with this. And my initial reaction was sort of like, I don't know. You know, I've, I've already got two books with Obama's name in the title. And if I do a third one, I'm going to just look like a complete total Obama obsessive. <laughs> furthermore, I was pretty obsessed myself with current events. And that meant the Trump era. You know, yeah. I'm writing about Trump and neo-fascism and eco-side and all the nasty, horrible things going. Then I took a deeper look at it. And I realized if anyone's going to do a book about Obama as an ex-president, I'm probably the guy to do it because I had before president and then in Empire's New Clothes, I had during president. And there is a connecting thread here. It, 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 it's almost like a, it's a, like a third, it's a, it's the trilogy, you know, it's the completion of the trilogy. And I realized I didn't have to give up focusing on what's going on with the Trump era because it's really all about it. It, it turned writing about Obama as an ex-president became a really interesting angle of vision on the Trump era. And in fact, I ended up writing my whole first chapter about Trump and what the Trump era is. And basically saying why, Obama got it right when he privately, all too privately, described Trump as a fascist. And, and then I became intrigued by the story of, okay, what do you do when you're an ex-president and the current president doesn't observe any norms, any of the regular norms of presidential behavior? And, in, and when, in fact, his breaking of presidential norms includes constantly trashing in a transparently racist kind of way, you, the former president. So I got, as a historian, I got interested in this question of what do ex-presidents do and what, what don't they do? And usually, normally, they, um, you know, they, they hold some fun razors and give a speech every once in a while and, uh, you know, go on a Jerry Lewis tell. No, that's a joke. They don't go on a Jerry Lewis tell. Uh, you know, they're pretty quiet. And in a similar vein, current presidents are usually pretty quiet about their predecessors. There are these presidential ruling class norms of conduct for presidents and ex-presidents. And one of the things that hooked me is what, what is the norm for an ex-president when, the, when your successor uh, trashes every known uh, 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 presidential norm, including being quiet about you, and when, in fact, he's on a constant jihad that he just can't let go of about you. By the way, that's not new with Trump. If you read Michael Cohen's book that just came out, Disloyal, he talks about how Trump uh, was obsessed with Obama probably from 2010 on. But he built his political reputation on in, in yeah. a lot of ways. Birtherism, all of that. Right. And 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 before Obama actually made very clever fun of him at the white correspondence dinner, as Michael Cohen points out, he always hated Obama. And it's probably a lot of it has to do with race. Just deeply offended by the existence of an of an eloquent um, Harvard law educated ruling class president in the White House. It just really got under his racist queen's skin you know uh, that's how i sort of ended up doing it and then actually how Ob- obama in many ways is a negative reference point for me of exactly how not to respond to the trump phenomena with all this um inauthentic opposition and 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 politeness and electoralism and essentially just uh, giving him the, the 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 free reign of whatever the hell he wants to do without taking to the streets now obama had to Briefly, the George Floyd rebellion led him to briefly acknowledge the significance of people going into the streets. 
I mean, it was just you, you couldn't you couldn't avoid it. I mean, it was too obvious. It was the biggest protest movement in American history. I don't know if people know that. Twenty seven million people is extraordinary. I mean, it was from coast to coast. There were people in Reagan's hometown, Dixon, Illinois, having Black Lives Matter marches after. Can you imagine that after the after the George Floyd thing? Uh, so he, but he had to get yeah. in his dig. He still had to get his digs in. But just don't forget, it's really, it's really everything's about voting. And at the John Lewis funeral oration, he actually said, "It's the most important thing that citizens could ever do, or that you could like. It's like the most important thing you could ever do in life. You know, yeah. so like well, more important than giving birth, apparently." You know. Well, we also have at, the, at John Lewis's funeral, you know, Bill Clinton doing a little bit of a hit on Stokely Carmichael. Oh, that was grotesque. You know, which is relapsed to the sister soldier movement moment. Well, who is the asshole? George Will has actually gone on. He's gone on television a couple of times. And the right wing George Will, who's now a mm-hmm. Republican for Biden, he says Biden needs a he needs a sister soldier. He needs to smack down black people. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing about that Bill Clinton thing is that he mentioned anecdotally he mentioned that john lewis was arrested when he was arrested on selma or beaten up on the bridge in selma he had a copy of richard hofstetter's book the american political tradition in his book bag and i just thought it was hilarious that clinton mentioned that because that's like the first book i read as an undergraduate in american history at a left-wing history department in the 1970s and it was a the book the core thesis of which was that both sides of the american partisan system the, the Jeffersonians versus the Hamiltonians at the beginning, the Whigs versus the Democrats later, and the Democrats versus the Republicans, but that they were both all on board with the same capitalist, nationalistic system. And of course, Bill Clinton in Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States is, I think he cites Hofstetter on that, how there, there, there's consensus yeah. between both of the parties right before he goes into his chapter, you have to check me on this, about Bill Clinton. And I just, I just thought that was delicious. You know, that, that Clinton thought that ought to be mentioned when Clinton is like an epitome of the Hofstetter Zinn thesis that their two major parties are as much alike as they are different. With one right, what Gorbachev out, right? Two, two parties right, with one right, right, right wing. Yeah. One party with two right wings. One party with two right wings, yeah. <laughs> that was so gross what Clinton did. He's got, it was such lame, you know, that, that's, you know, as a white guy who's worked in the black community a lot, I got to say that was some lame crossing, you know, like, like he, Clinton thinks he has all this street credibility in black America where, where somehow he gets to get up there and call out Stokely Carmichael. I mean, you know, gimme. First, first black president, right? right? Well, I think, and like you said, though, I think liberals are, are kind of incapable of understanding that the black community is very diverse and they have, you know, you have bourgeois blacks, you have conservative blacks, you have street Absolutely. people, people in the streets. And, you know, to them, everybody is like Jim Clyburn or John Lewis, you know, or, or some contrived idea of Martin Luther King that's not even really accurate. You know, oh yeah, liberals don't know King. That, yeah. They don't know that Dr. King was a socialist. Yeah, they keep invoking King, right? We're probably running towards the end of our time. Right. If Bob has any follow-up questions, I have one wrap-up question. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. Um, it's been great, and you know we'll have to have you back on again to talk about. Uh, we we love dishing on Obama. It's one of our favorite things. Just my wrap-up question is: uh, in your book, you quote Lenin as saying, "What Do must I? be." What must be done? Oh, okay. Right. So, any final thoughts on what must be done in this particular moment? Well, I, I do think it's. I, th- I think that we're in a moment where people like me, and it sounds like Bob, who probably, and, and perhaps you, Scott, who have a history of um, writing off the binary election and voting third party, probably this time we shouldn't. You know, particularly if you're like me and you're in a contested state. But that that's in and of itself insufficient. Um, in my opinion, um, and, and this is on a couple of levels, actually, even for a decent, a halfway decent, I mean, insofar as a decent election is even possible under the American electoral system, you know, where, where money has no limits, you know, where the elected, well, we don't, you know, I have fun sometimes trying to explain to someone from another country, the American electoral college. I mean, we, we don't even elect the president of the United States by popular vote, but insofar as we can have a normal election and get rid of this malignant tumor, which incidentally Obama helped create. And his, and his popularity ironically reflects the burnishing of his image by the horrors of the Trumpenstein that he helped create. 
But insofar as we can have any kind of decent election to destroy this, uh, this tumor, um, it's probably going to require more than an election. It's going to require people being in the streets, I think, before, during, and after the election to send a very clear message to power elite, the, the, the ruling class. Uh, I, I, it amazes me that I'm even saying this, even up, up into the upper reaches of the Pentagon, that uh, you really don't want to let this guy back. You're really going to have trouble if you don't get rid of him. But, but this would then be a practice run, in my opinion, it's just to counter what I'm what I'm already hearing in the back of my mind from leftists saying, well, you've just been co-opted to Biden. No, no, I, I this is I don't advocate people in the streets just to install Joe Biden and say, oh, everything's great. We can all go home now. No, not at all, because you're not going to get anything decent out of a Biden administration without pressure in the streets. And in fact, we need to take on the whole system that is the whole damn uh, uh, unelected dictatorship of money and empire and white supremacism that gave rise to this this malignancy called Trumpism in the first place. And that's what I believe in. I mean, I'm a full-on revolutionary socialist. And so, no, sorry, I, 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 I don't advocate people in the streets just for Joe. Not at yeah. all. Far from it. It has been great talking to you. I think the Green and Red podcast team are on board with you. I consider myself a bit of a revolutionary anarchist. So, and I'm going to vote, although I'm in California, so I'm going to have to hear Well, out. I'm an anarchist on Tuesday and Thursday, and <laughs> on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a Buddhist on Sunday. Yeah. But folks, you've been listening to Paul Street, uh, author of many books, including Hollow Resistance, contributor to Counterpunch and Truth Dig. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Uh, folks, if you want to follow us on social media, you can go to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to follow the Green Red podcast. And then we're also on YouTube and we'll actually be playing the full video of this, but we'll also have some clips as teasers coming soon. And then as always, you can listen to us on all your podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash Green Red podcast or making a one-time donation at greenredpodcast.org. And we will talk to all of you next time. Take care, folks. Thank you.